0: Father, outside of the supreme gift of your son, Jesus Christ, we have no reason to be here. We would not be gathering together to worship you. We would be sitting at home, worshiping false gods, worshiping ourselves. But because of your son, because of the propitiation that he made, because of the uh, incarnation and the virgin birth, Lord, because of that, you have redeemed us. You have changed us. You have given us hearts to love you. And for that reason, we gather here. Father, I pray and I ask that you would continue in your faithfulness to teach us again today, Lord, through your word. Father, that I would not go to the left or the right of your word. I would not go before you or behind you, but that I would stay right with you in the preaching of your word. Father, Bless your people through your Holy Spirit by revealing yourself to them once again that we would fall deeper in love with you once again. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are three times in this section of Scripture that an emotion on the part of Jesus is given to us. Most people, even non-Christians, know that middle one, verse 35, where Jesus wept. Our verses today begin with Jesus coming to the tomb, the tomb of Lazarus. But before he got there, it says that he was deeply moved again. This is the second time in this account that that same verb was used to describe what Jesus felt. The first was in verse 33 of this chapter. And there we are told when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That is the verse that explains verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, the verse that tells us that Jesus wept. And the word that is used in the original, in the original Greek for that verb to, that, that describes that weeping is key in understanding the emotion that our Savior was experiencing at that moment. Emotion? Yes, emotion. Just because our culture is led by its emotions does not make emotions bad, ungodly, or wrong. God has given you emotions on purpose, for a purpose. He desires you to love, to hate, to laugh and even cry. These are all part of being created in His image. These emotions allow us to more fully experience the beauty of His creation, the wonder of His love, and the grandeur of his glory. If we didn't have emotions, we truly would be robots, automatons, pawns in a cosmic chess game. But Jesus wept. The most manly man that ever was, the definition of masculine, the exact image of the eternal father, wept. And he wept openly and people marveled to such a degree that we're told in verse 36 that those around him took notice of this and said, look at how much he cared for him. These professional mourners, the family friends who came with Mary to where the body was laid, all came weeping as well. But the word that is used to describe what they were doing is far different compared to the word that, is des- that describes Jesus. Both words are specific, and those emotions are different, just as those words are that describe them. The weeping that the people were doing can be best described as mourning, uncontrolled emotions. But verse 35, in describing the emotions expressed by Jesus, that word just means to shed tears, not uncontrolled emotions. The importance in this distinction is found in verse 33, and then again in our verse today, verse 38. The verb that surrounds this weeping, because Jesus did cry, he did shed tears, and since he's the exact representation of our eternal God, since he is our elder brother, and our understanding of really what it means to be Christian, Since we are being conformed into the image of Christ, we need to make sure that we know why he wept. What was the emotion that was the driver behind this weeping? First, let's settle in our minds that God does have emotions. Now, the eternal and the spiritual are not like the temporal and mortal. The emotions that we have are not exactly the same as those of the Father. But we are told that he does feel, that he's not an ancient stoic that rules the cosmos with an iron fist. We are told in Genesis 6-6 that God feels sorrow. It says, and Yahweh regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Jeremiah 8:19 tells us he feels anger. Why have they provoked me to anger and their, with their carved images and with their foreign idols? Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. We're told that he rejoices. Zephaniah three, seventeen: Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who is to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And the fact that he hates, Psalm 11, verse 5. Yahweh tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And that he's a God of compassion, Psalm 103, verse 8, Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But it is only in the person of Jesus that we ever hear or see God weep. And this is not the only time that we are told that Jesus wept. Luke nineteen forty one tells us, And when he drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. And we're told in Hebrews 5, 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of, because of his reverence. Jesus came to make the Father noble to make him known. And he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In John 14:9, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the father. Jesus is God. And Jesus demonstrated the love of God through his life, through his love and through his sacrifice. He has revealed to us in a manner and form that we can understand the unknowable, the unrecognizable. He has shown us God incarnate. But what was the emotion behind Jesus weeping? Was it compassion for the people who were around him? Was it the pain and suffering that these people felt for the loss of this man? That would be the easy answer. And it has been the romanticized answer as to why Jesus wept. But the verb that is given us in verse 33, and then again here in verse 38, renders that thinking null and void. The verb that was used in verse 33 should be rendered differently than it has been in the ESV. The New Living Translation has it translated correctly, ironically, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Now you may counter, the New Living Translation is a thought-for-thought thought translation and not a word-for-word word translation. But it's also not alone in, the word, in its use of that word anger to describe that verb. The Holman Christian Standard Bible and even the Aramaic Bible in plain English render that verb as anger. And that verb is translated in every other occurrence within the Bible the same way. And the second use of the verb following the reaction of the people around Jesus support the thought that compassion was not the driver behind the weeping of Christ. He did have compassion for them and the loss that they were feeling. But from our text, we can determine that it was more than just compassion that caused him to weep. It is after he sees the weeping and wailing of the mourners that are following Mary, after Mary has accused him of failing to do his job in keeping Lazarus alive, that he became angry and troubled within himself. That's verse or Verse 33. And then here in verse 38, he once again becomes angry. This time, it's on the heels of those that are surrounding Mary and Martha and his disciples. Those mourners, both the professional and the personal, it is after these witness him weeping and then once again make a judgment of him in saying that could not he have kept Lazarus from dying? Make sure in your mind that you're understanding what I'm saying here. Because what I'm not saying, what I am not saying, is that Jesus was self-conscious and insecure, and that's why he became angry. This is not what the text is teasing out. What it is teasing out, what it does want us to understand, is that the sin that surrounded Jesus that tainted the faith of those that did believe in him. The fact that these, his saints, who he would die for, did not recognize the reality of who he was. The accusation and presupposition of both Mary and Martha, and even that bad theology of Thomas, all these things are the same. Sin. And this is part of what caused that emotion to stir within Jesus. But there was another thing. The fact that death, the final enemy, was facing him, mocking the Son of God because of sin, even the sins of the people that were surrounding him. Because he could see all of this, and at the same time, he knew that it would cost not only his life, but more importantly, separation from his father. And then the full wrath of God being poured out on him. This, too, is what caused that emotion. And as and he wept. Because as he had told Martha, he is the resurrection and the life. And they were missing it. And because they were missing this truth, they were missing out on the life that he had given them. Not missing out as if not getting it, but missing out as if they're not living in it. They don't comprehend the reality of, the power of, and the blessing that comes with the new life that is found in this I am. That is the resurrection And the life. And this emotion, this anger, is the catalyst for the action within Jesus. In verse 39, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Jesus knew before the messengers even arrived telling him that Lazarus was ill, that he would be standing in front of this tomb, that he would be facing the last enemy, death and that he would demonstrate that he has power over death. Martha on the other hand could not have known what was about to happen. She was concerned about the embarrassment and even personal violation of exposing that decomposing body of her brother that in front of all those people that were standing there. Which is why she said, "Lord, by this time there will be an odor" for he has been dead four days. What she said was right. What she said made perfect logical sense. What she said was truth. Saints, realize this now. There will be times, there will be times in your life that your Savior, your Lord, will command you not ask you, he will command you to do the unreasonable, the illogical, the personally embarrassing. But also know that why you cannot and do not see the reason that you are being told to do this thing that will humiliate you. Obedience will always be rewarded. Which is the response from Jesus to her. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? What Jesus does is remind Martha of the very thing that he had asked her just a few minutes ago. Do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that everyone who believes in me will live even if they die? Do you not believe that those that believe in me in this life will never die? Do you believe this? And she told him that she did believe this. And now he is telling her something more about that belief. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they took away this stone. We are never told Who it was that obeyed Jesus? Was it the disciples? More than likely it was, since obeying and obedience is a clear sign of discipleship. But who it was is not the issue at hand, which is why they remain anonymous. That they did obey is the issue. Christ commanded and they obeyed. This is the hallmark of a true disciple of Christ. And then, we are given the first recorded prayer of Jesus in the book of John. Eleven chapters into this book, this is the first recorded prayer of Jesus. And like all things within Scripture, this is placed here for a specific reason. We're not to take from that that Jesus seldom prayed to his Father. We know that that's not the case from the Synoptic Gospels. Luke records that Jesus was praying while he was being baptized, Luke 3.21. That he often went alone to pray, Luke 5.16. And then prior to this event happening, he taught the disciples how to pray, Luke 11, 1 through 13. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that. That you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. The content of this prayer is very telling. First, he desired that people understood the unity between the Father and the Son, that the Father sent the Son, and that the work of the Son was that of the Father. And secondly, though this prayer is not a prayer of intercession, We know from Hebrews 7.25 that he, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for us. And while this prayer is not a prayer of intercession, it, it is representative of the fact that Christ was interceding for his saints. When he said, Father, I thank you that you have already heard me. And because he knew that his father always heard him, that all authority had been given to him, He was confident in his mission, so he follows up this prayer to his father with a command to a dead man. Verse 43, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Saints, do not gloss over the impossibility of this moment. Lazarus was not an actor waiting for a cue, waiting for a cue from a director. He wasn't playing at being dead. He hadn't been lying on that stone slab for 4 days waiting for Jesus to give him his cue to perform. He was dead. His spirit had left that body of death. His body had begun the process of decomposing. In fact, a body begins decomposing the moment that the heart stops beating and blood is no longer being provided, um, providing nutrients to to the cells within the body. So a man who's been dead for four days certainly cannot come back to life outside of God. Verse 44, the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. But because Jesus is God, because he can and does work outside of the realm of possibility within this realm, he could command a dead man to rise. And that dead man now alive, obeyed. This is the power of God. Commentators have said on this section, if the command to come out by Jesus hadn't been specific in saying Lazarus come out, that all the dead people would have come out. Now, is that truth? Who knows? But because of the demonstrated performance of the Christ to bring back the dead, back to life. It certainly is plausible. And this dead man now comes hobbling alive to the entrance of that cave. The command by Jesus to unbind him, to let him go, is validation of the fact that he had in fact been dead. Because when a person died in that day and age, those around him had to work very fast to get that body to its last resting place. They would wrap cloth Strips around him to uh, to keep that body from contorting in death. They would wrap the head tightly to keep the jaw from gaping open in death. That was the state that Lazarus woke up in. This dead man. Wrapped in dead man's clothing is now alive. And he hobbled out of the tomb. And this is the perspective of what those people saw, of what happened in this realm. And the people were shocked. They were amazed. Bringing Lazarus back from the dead is an earthly demonstration of the power of Christ over death. One that has implications for the real life that elect dead men are given. Just as that once dead man who is now standing there all bound up as he is standing there in the impossibility of having his decaying tissue regenerated to the point of supporting life again. This reality, this perspective should make us think, should force us to ask ourselves a question concerning the reality of our eternal life with Christ. What did Lazarus do to come back to life? What part did he play in all of this? Did he hear Jesus softly and tenderly calling him, wooing him to rise? Did Lazarus, after being given the opportunity to come back to life, think it over, analyze his options and then decide, yeah, I'm gonna take Jesus up on his offer. How do the dry bones of Ezekiel 37 come back to life? And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause you I'm sorry I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to cover upon you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am Yahweh This is how life in Christ happens This is how salvation happens Just as Lazarus was dead and then was made alive and then heard the command from Jesus to rise. So, too, we, every person is dead until we are brought back to life and then hear the command by the Lord to rise in new life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 tells us, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus Christ was the primary actor in this miracle Lazarus did play a part in it he hobbled constrained by the effects of death until he was loosened and every sinner that has moved from the family of Satan to the family of God those that are of the elect that have been predestined, that have been chosen, that have been called, they all play a part in their salvation as well. They hear, they hobble in obedience to the Lord, and are finally set free from the bondage that our death has wrapped us in. This is how our life with Christ begins. The death of Lazarus was used to bring glory to God, to the Son of God, in the raising of him to life. Your death in sin has been used to bring even greater glory to God. Raising a dead man back to life in this realm is nothing in comparison to the life that we are given in Christ. The reason for this is that life in this realm is not equal to the life in our heavenly realm. Our death, our spiritual death, is not just the same as having life. We are dead because of sin. We are consumed by sin. It is affected and infected every part of our bodies and spirit. It's in our DNA. And sin is diametrically opposed to God. We were dead to God. We were enemies of God. And we were under the wrath of God. And there was nothing that we could do about it. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. In the heavens. The angelic beings can and do see us for what we are. They can see the putrid, horrid state that is the life of those outside of Christ. They see us as their enemies, outsiders, deserving of the wrath of God. And they are waiting eagerly for us to receive this wrath because they desire to see God glorified in his wrath against these deserving, God-hating, treasonous rebels. And at the same time, they see and are enthralled by the holiness of God, aware of all his splendor, glorying in all the goodness that is him. They see these things that are diametrically opposite and opposed to each other. God, us. And then they see the impossible happen. They watch as God in his divine mercy and grace places his love on one of those rebellious, God-hating, treasonous rebels. They see him in all of his holiness place himself in the souls and hearts, and makes this man come alive to him. They watch as he takes these dry bones and brings them back to life, which causes them to shout, glory to God in the highest, all over again. That's Peter, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. And listen to how John describes this in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. He says, "After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches and in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, "Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's us." In verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We do play a part in our salvation but we have no say over it. God gives us a new heart, a new nature, and then he calls us through his word, calls us to repent and be baptized. And just like with Lazarus, we do that which our new nature has given us the ability and the desire to do. We obey. And Lazarus came forth he obeyed. So what's the point of all this? What's the moral of this story? What are we supposed to glean from the telling of this event of John chapter 11? Well, there are a multiplied myriad of points that can be gleaned from this event. I want to focus on one with a subheading underneath it. Jesus said, that the illness of Lazarus would not end in death, that it was for the glory of God, that the Son of God would be glorified in it. Jesus was glorified in this illness and that Lazarus did die. That his imperfect theology, as well as that of his sisters, would die as the Son of God proved that he was God by demonstrating that he had power over life and death. And the final and best demonstration of the glory of the Son of Man happens in death, in life. But not in the death and life of Lazarus, but in the death and life of the Son of Man himself. Most kings demonstrate their glory through a crown and a coronation. Jesus demonstrates his glory through the cross and the most humiliating act ever. But the death of Jesus on the cross was not a defeat. It was victory. The cross is not where Jesus is judged. It is the place from where he judges all the rulers and powers of this world. The cross of Christ is where the kingdom of God was finally restored. It was there that Jesus could rightfully shout, Te telesti. It is Finished. But it was in the death of Lazarus and the bringing um, him back to life that Jesus proved that he was the Son of God. And it was in this act, this final act, that Jesus demonstrated in the greatest way that he was, in fact, God incarnate. That's the point that I want to highlight. Now the sub-point. Ties in with the question that Jesus asked Martha in verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God? Is this not what you desire in your life? To see the glory of God? Martha was concerned with losing face. With being embarrassed. And for this reason she didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus what Jesus was going to do. But she was wise enough to listen to the admonishment of the Lord and fell in line with him. The sin of Martha, Mary, and even Thomas was that they thought that the ministry of Jesus was focused in this realm, to bring about the kingdom of God here. They didn't understand that the ministry of Jesus was an eternal ministry A ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of God, I'm sorry, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Here is the sub-point that I want to make today. Jesus told Martha that if she believed, she would see the glory of God. Believed what? Believed that Jesus was reconciling the world to his Father. Do you believe this? Do you believe that there's only one path, one way to the Father, that it is through his Son? Do you believe that in the death of Christ, the shedding of his blood, the taking of the full wrath of his Father, that in this that he purchased those that his Father had given him? That through Christ, God reconciled us to himself? Do you believe that? that in the beginning was the Word, that the Word was with God, and that the Word was God? Do you believe that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God? If you do, then do you not desire to see the glory of God? Do you not know that God has saved you, adopted you, and has given you You, the same ministry that he gave his dear son, he has given us the message of reconciliation, he has given us the privilege of bringing glory to him through the telling the truth to men. Do you desire to see the glory of God? Then share. The gospel. But what is the gospel? Isn't that my testimony? Isn't that telling people that Jesus loves them as they are? That he has great plans for their lives? That he desires them to live happier, better, here? That he can fix their problems if they would only just give him a chance? No. That is not the gospel. The gospel is God, man, sin, salvation. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. right after Acts. Romans 1. Chapter 1 is the introduction of this letter to Christians. Christians, mind you, this letter is written to Christians in Rome who Paul didn't know. And from the very beginning, he tells them that he longs to come and preach the gospel to them. That's verse 15. And then verses 16 and 17, he tells them why he desired to come and preach the gospel to them. For he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he tells them he wants to come and preach the gospel to him. But he can't wait. So he begins to preach the gospel to him in letter form. First, he tells them about God, that there is a God. That's verses 18 through 20, where he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. He then moves from the reality of the good God to the reality of man, verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, There is no atheist, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, primarily themselves, and birds and animals and creeping things. This is a great explanation of not only man, but also what sin is. We need to really grasp this and understand what sin is. Sin is not just actions that are opposed to the holiness of God. They are that, but they are much more than that. They are every thought that is opposite of God, every intention that is not in line with his character. Sin is knowing that there is a God, And not honoring him as God and not giving thanks to him. It is is not in acknowledging him as God, which is the futility of their minds, which means futility means uselessness, pointlessness, which is the thinking of fallen man. This is the reality of sin and the reality of fallen men. And what was the consequence of the futility or thinking? Verses 24 through 31. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion, one for another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The result is that God gave us over to ourselves. He gives us what we want and deserve. This is the reality of fallen man. We do have the free will choice. The ability to choose. The the only problem is that we can only choose that which is our character within our nature. And we are by nature creatures of wrath, evil, defiled. God has given us over to ourselves. And all we can do is choose that what we want. Which is why hell is eternal. Because we are created in the image of God. We are created eternal beings. Not only is our sin a sin against an eternal God, but our nature for all eternity will remain the same because of our sin. It doesn't change when you die. We will always be creatures of wrath for all eternity, and we will always be like those in revelation 16:11 who after receiving the punishment for the sin in this realm cursed the god of heaven for their pain and sores they did not repent of their deeds this is why hell is eternal because those in hell will for all eternity hate god But Paul is not through preaching the truth of the radical depravity of man. He reveals the truth of God in two verses. Just two verses. But then he begins to tell us the truth of who we are and what sin is. And it not only takes the rest of chapter 1, but all of chapter 2, and even into chapter 3 for most people if we ever do present the gospel, we are always quick to rush past that sin part, the responsibility of man for his fallen condition part, the consequences of sin part. We want to rush right to that salvation part. But that wasn't the case for Paul. He spent time on this because he knew that it was the conviction that happens when God makes sin a reality in our life. It is only then that the word can affect real change in our life. He doesn't get to the salvation part of the gospel until chapter 3. And then that comes at the end of chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the I am of the resurrection and the life? Do you believe the truth of the gospel, that there is a God, a God that makes propitiation for men? Have you repented of your sin against this God? Have you cried out to God for salvation, asking him to forgive you of your sins, asking him to save you from yourself? If you believe this and if you do cry out to him in repentance, he will save you. That is the good news. Christ came to save sinners. If you believe this, then you're just like Lazarus on that day, a formerly dead man, now made alive. Only the life that Christ has given you is real life, life that will not, cannot ever end. That guilt, that shame that you're feeling that won't go away, that is the command by God to come. And you, like Lazarus, must obey. You must come. You must hobble, all bound up in the sin that you've wrapped yourself in. You must come to Christ, just like Lazarus did. And saints, if you believe this, then obey your Savior. Preach the gospel. He has made us ministers of his reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ. He has given us the supreme privilege of being his mouth, his voice in the lives of those that he is going to bring from death to life. But the gospel seems unreasonable, kind of illogical, actually kind of embarrassing. Yes, Martha, it is all of those things. But did he not tell you that if you believe that you will see the glory of God? That stone had to be rolled away. The body of death had to be revealed. And then the Son of God could then raise him from the dead. Do you not desire to see the glory of God for yourself? You felt it within yourself. You have personally been affected by it. Do you not desire to bring glory to God by believing that the thing which has happened to you can and will happen in others. Do you not desire to participate in bringing glory to God through the ministry of reconciliation? Do you not want to see dead men brought back to life? Then obey. Preach the gospel with your mouth which is the only means for people to be saved. They must hear the truth of who God is and who they are. They're not going to get that from your life being demonstrated. They need to know how they have separated themselves from him. And then, and then, they need to hear of the great and glorious truth that their is hope that Jesus saves sinners. Don't worry about being perfect in your presentation. Don't worry about offending people. Don't worry about looking stupid for believing this truth. You have been given the privilege of knowing God, of having peace with God, of being an ambassador of God. He is the one who saves. All you do is tell the truth. And when he does save, when after fumbling through that telling of the truth of the gospel, when he allows you to see him bring the dead to life, it is then that you will see his glory for yourself. And when that happens, you will be ruined, completely ruined, for everything else that this world has got to offer. The events of this account concerning Lazarus were all by, through, and even for God, from the illness, to the death, to the life once again. It was all by God. It's the same now. We are merely the people of this account. Those spectators, the doubters, the mourners, and even the stone pushers. But those that were there, that believed, that obeyed, they saw that which Jesus told the disciples back in verse 4. When he said that the illness doesn't lead to death, that it's for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. They saw this take place. And for those that truly believed, they were never the same again. This is the same ministry that he has offered to us, that he's given the privilege of us to have. Let's pray.